MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 129 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, July 12th, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Today, we have an update on the Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani, including a sanctions dollar amount and a potential settlement deal. Also, indictments in Manhattan for straw donors to Mayor Eric Adams and another letter from the prosecutor that investigated Hunter Biden to congressional Republicans. Yep, another letter. Uh, and we also have uh, Fulton County grand jury selection is now underway. Uh, that's in the um, the Trump et al. case down, down in Georgia. Also, a Trump judge has denied the Department of Justice's motion for a stay pending Shocker. their appeal of the injunction barring federal agencies from communicating with social media companies. And a proposed dick measuring contest? Sure. <laughs> let's let's throw that in there. I, I wish you were kidding, but oh no, you're not. <laughs> I am. I am not. Uh, that is not a metaphor. Uh, but first, we have a ton of new patrons to thank. Thank you so much, patrons. You make this show possible. Um, new signups this week include Tim from Down Under, Lou, Deb Wearson, Kate Mulligan, Kathy Vick, Beth Case Scenario, Emmy Lang, Joanne Pleskovich, Janet Humphreys, Ronnie Call, Mary Rochford, Nancy McCraw, Robert Bernard, Elena, Giselle Dubson, Tim Anglin, JTKB, and Linda Brine. Thank you so much, so, so much, patrons. You make this show happen. If you want to become a patron and get these episodes early and ad-free, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's aisle four five pod all right. Well, without further ado, um, there's some new stuff going on in the Rudy Giuliani case, uh, the one where he's being sued for defamation by Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. And we went over part of this over the weekend on the bonus episode for patrons. Uh, but new stuff is happening. So just to give a little background here, on the 5th of July, in response to the judge ordering Rudy to pay sanctions for failing to produce documents during discovery, Moss and Freeman submitted a detailed list of the costs related to the discovery dispute, because you can't just get all your lawyer's costs uh, paid uh, when you file a sanctions motion. It's just related to them trying to get Rudy to just produce documents during discovery. And the total there came to $89,172.50. And that is based on something called Laffy. Can you talk about that for a second, Pete? Yeah, so, so there's a... A lot of different ways that 
attorneys bill clients. Some of it they'll do by the project. Sometimes they have like what their advertised rate is. But typically, especially when you get to big law firms, it's like buying a car. Nobody pays the sticker. So what there's a, a, a scale, it's like a big matrix called the Laffey matrix where the sort of rates that the government has agreed to reimburse counsel, you know, based on their time practicing, the level within their firm, whether partner, say, or an associate or paralegal, they kind of sets out like the set agreement. So you may see attorneys saying, well, they bill at $1,400 an hour. And I'm not making that up. If you go to big firms, partners will bill like their sticker rate is, you know, 1200 1400 an hour, which shockingly enough is, is pretty common. But then this Laffey rate is is a reduced rate. And typically when courts are awarding attorney fees, they will look to that rate to say, okay, this is this is what we'll use to calculate. You say you spent, you know, 130.2 hours, we'll use that Laffey sort of adjusted rate to reimburse people when it comes to figuring out what attorney fees are. I see. So that's how they, they and the, I mean, the filing is like 20 something pages. So it's very detailed. Uh, and it goes, it uh, comes up with 89,000 roughly. Then, uh, two days later, on July 7th, the parties jointly filed a motion to move the filing deadline to July 11th because they say they're both close to a resolution or a settlement for certain issues regarding Giuliani's liability, which are relevant to the sanctions motion. So I thought that was very interesting. The filing says that on July 6th, the day after Moss and Freeman submitted the $89,000 sanctions figure... Lawyers for Rudy approached lawyers for Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman to discuss a potential negotiated resolution that, quote, would resolve large portions of this litigation and otherwise give rise to plaintiffs' anticipated request for sanctions. Councils for both parties have worked diligently to negotiate a resolution and believe they are close. It goes on to say plaintiffs and the defendant agree that a very limited extension of time is warranted to July 11th to enable the parties to determine whether such an agreement can be reached. Again, that new deadline is July 11th, which is the day after we're recording this episode, but the day before the episode airs. So we'll cover that potential resolution on the next episode uh, or the and the Patreon bonus this weekend. And, and I mean, it could be they don't reach a resolution by July 11th and need another extension or that they do. But this sounds to me, Pete, like they're reaching a resolution for a settlement on the whole shebang, right? Or is it just parts of it as you read it? Yeah, no, it seems like it's more than that. And I do think, I mean, they, they say in this motion that it's, you know, resolving large portions of the litigation. It's not, you know, it's not just one aspect. It's not a, you know, a sanctions bill. So I think one, the fact that they both agree, the plaintiffs and defendant agree to a limited time extension, I think there's a chance that, you know, come tomorrow that we'll see some sort of agreement that, you know, if you're both, ideally, if you're either party, unless you've got some like righteous, I want to take you to court and there's nothing, you know, a dominion, right? Where you have Fox News and Fox News Corp dead to rights and there's really no strong incentive to settle. And even they settle something like this, you know, if they get there and, you know, they have not only a sanctions bill for attorney fees, but also some sort of other uh, resolution of the charges, you know, we may see it. So I think you're right. I mean, my gut is it'll be more than just, hey, we agreed that, you know, we're going to pay $75,000 for attorney fees and Otherwise, everything is moving down the track. I, I suspect there may be more coming, but you know we'll know very soon. That's you know tomorrow, and as you listen to this, you do know. So we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, and I also think it's interesting to have this whole thing settled, right? I mean, w w to to calculate what the damages could be, to come up with a dollar amount, 
after Rudy made a filing that says he only owns two businesses and zero assets except for a couple of microphones and some media equipment, it, it'll be interesting to see. I, and I, I do want to, you know, warn everybody: they might not tell us what the amount is. Usually, these settlement yep. settlement agreements include. Uh, a clause that says we aren't going to talk about the settlement amount. But, you know, we also might learn uh, we just what it is. We just don't know. Uh, it's like I said, it's the day before this deadline is due. Uh, but yeah, as you listen to this episode, we'll, we'll definitely have more information and we'll talk about that more in depth um, on, the, on the weekend episode and next week's episode of Clean Up on L45. Uh, also, in a related story, a, a judge has ordered a summary judgment Bannon hasn't been paying his lawyers. There's a theme. Uh, Allison, there's a theme going here. What what <laughs> could that theme be? And who, like, hmm, not paying bills. Who, Don, Don Trump. I mean, they're just, God almighty. It, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and this time the bill is close to $500,000. And instead of having to go to trial over this bill, that I, I'm pretty sure it's Robert Costello, right, and his law firm, instead of going to trial over getting this, the, the judge awarded the lawyer, a summary judgment of, of it looks like the total amount they wanted, which is close to half a million dollars. So he's also, as we know, Bannon, he's indicted now in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for his We Build the Wall scheme, not subject to double jeopardy because of the, the sovereignty uh, laws, dual sovereignty. Uh, and uh, he's, I mean, he's being investigated for his participation in what happened on January 6th. So it's going to be interesting to see. Oh, he's also, we're still waiting to him to go to, for, for him to go to prison in his criminal contempt case. The judge let him out pending his appeal of his four-month prison sentence for not showing up to a January 6th committee subpoena. Yeah, this is all just kicking down, kicking the can down the road. At some point, it's going to catch up. Like, you know, Bannon, Navarro, Rudy, it's all the same. And Trump, I mean, it's all the same playbook. I mean, we'll see what happens with, uh, you know, Walt Nada and his, you know, bid to delay um, some of the SEPA hearings down in Florida. But time and time and time again, all these folks aren't paying their bills. They're doing everything in their power to push the, you know, whatever decision, push it down the road and wait and wait and delay. But, you know, sooner or later, it's not. And the thing is, for all of these folks, it's not just one thing. I mean, they are facing troubles. Maybe not, you know, Peter Navarro's got a, compared to Bannon and Rudy, he's got a narrower sort of like exposure. But they all have, you know, a pretty complex set of adverse things coming down the pike. I mean, if you look at Rudy and I mean, we'll talk about Rudy coming up right, you know, next next uh, topic here. But they have on their, you know, sort of what's coming in front of them strategically. They have criminal activity. They have bar activity. They have federal action. They have state action. There's just a lot of crap and you can push it down the line. But at some point that's going to catch up. And when it catches up, it's going to come like a hammer. Yeah, and if that freight train is coming in Georgia, we're 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 hearing new movement down there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is so Rudy, you know, as as we've talked about before on the show at length, he he is a target, not a subject, but a target of Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and she's set to begin jury selection this week. So there's an eleven alive in Atlanta who reports that Fulton County Superior Court grand jury selection will begin Tuesday. So yesterday, as you're listening to it, as Georgia's case surrounding former President Donald Trump moves into its next phase. The next grand juries could indict Trump for criminally interfering in Georgia's 2020 election. Now, two grand juries will hear several Fulton County cases. Uh, DA Fonnie Willis said recently that she plans to present evidence against Trump and his allies during the fourth term 
a Fulton County Superior Court, which runs from July 11th to September the 1st. So grand jury selection for that court term begins July 11th. Willis told 11 Alive, quote, that investigation is ongoing, but the timeline that I've set out for the American people having an answer is September 1st. Willis said that other criminal mm-hmm. cases against the former president have no current impact on her investigation. So unlike what, uh, you know, folks up in New York, um, Letitia James or, you know, others have said, Fannie Willis is saying, look, we're moving ahead. What does or doesn't happen at Mar-a-Lago? What does or doesn't happen with Jack Smith and the other January 6th potential activity that doesn't have an impact on what she's doing? So, you know, we'll see. And, you know, again, that's we're we're getting close. I, it, when the grand jury sits and starts receiving information... We're what, you know, I'm a little over a month and a half away from her September 1st deadline. And I wouldn't be surprised if we know maybe before then. Yeah, I was thinking probably the week of August 7th. um, I think the court is in recess. I think they have a retreat that they're doing uh, the first week of August. And then Fani said, clear your dockets August 7th through August 21st. Don't want anything on your docket August 7th through August 21st. She's impaneling that grand jury now. Um, for, so, you know, the two of them and, and we'll see, we'll see, (laughs) we're going to know sooner rather than later. I mean, August is right around the corner and if Rudy couldn't afford discovery in the Ruby Moss case, I don't know how he's going to defend himself in it. it, We know Trump stopped paying his bills, um, for, for Rudy a, a long time ago. Uh, so we'll see. And then of course, Rudy recently had a proffer session with the Jack Smith prosecutors for January 6th. So Lots of stuff coming down the bend for Rudy. Um, so I hope he's doing maybe some fundraising, uh, legal defense fund, something. He's going to need more money uh, than a couple of media pits of media equipment that yeah, he's told the court under penalty of perjury that he had. Exactly. Paying him 20 bucks to tape record a uh, happy birthday wishes to your nephew ain't going to get him across the finish line when it comes to these sanctions. So we'll see. And, you know, again, what, what interesting thing that I read was, you know, people, a lot of discussion about that uh, a December 18th, 2020 meeting uh, in the White House, you know, the crazy thing in the Oval Office where you had, you know, Patrick Byrne and Sidney Powell and Rudy and Mike Flynn and, you know, folks pointing out that there is absolutely no love lost between Rudy and Sidney Powell in particular. So when it comes to sitting down and talking with Jack Smith, Rudy, you know, whatever you may think of him, Rudy has seen a lot. And Rudy was, you know, at one point in time, a very competent prosecutor, you know, a very competent attorney, you know, kind of a tragedy where he finds himself now. But if you're, you know, if he has sort of, uh, you know, animosity or knives out for somebody, you know, I'm thinking Sidney Powell in particular, you know, we'll see what comes out of whatever he shared with Jack Smith. Yeah, 100 percent. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back in a minute. We're going to discuss what's going on with uh, prosecutors in New York indicting about a half a dozen people for making straw donations. It's a big story. It's not getting a lot of coverage right now. Not quite sure why, I guess, because maybe Biden didn't wear socks uh, (laughs) at some point. Uh, So, you know, there's really important news stories going out there, but we'll cover that (laughs) as soon as we get back from the break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Yet more patrons to thank. We've got Lori Narona, Maureen Decombe, Nancy Chekon or Sikon, Mandy LaBelle, Sharonda Harris, Denise Siebert, Mindy Faber, Sue Barker, Barbara O'Cam, Lisa Bartruff, Joanne Purcell, Carrie Walker, Matthew Forbes, Tama Surfos, Aaron Belusky, Raymond Van Moosh, 
and Republicans Can't Tech. Again, thank all of you so much. This is truly, you know, amazing. And what, you know, your support, again, allows all of this to take place, whether it's the, the weekly podcast, whether it's the bonus episode, you make this possible. So thank all of you. This is just tremendous. And thank you for your support. So next up, let's go up to New York from Gregorian at NBC. Prosecutors in New York have indicted a half dozen people who allegedly used a straw donor scheme to steer tens of thousands of dollars in public matching funds to New York City Mayor Eric Adams' successful 2021 campaign. Now, uh, Alvin Bragg says, and this is his quote, we allege a deliberate scheme to game the system in a blatant attempt to gain power. The indictment doesn't accuse Adams of wrongdoing, but says the six accused were trying to curry favor with his campaign with the goal of landing city business. <laughs> this is from one of, from an email, quote, FYI, this is the one I want. Safety, trywall, and security. One project, but we can all eat, wrote Shamsuddin Riza, one of the defendants, in an email to another, Dwayne Montgomery, in July of 2021, talking about a construction project in Brooklyn. That email exchange took place about 12 days after Montgomery allegedly told Riza in a phone conversation that, quote, this is in brackets, the candidate, unspecified, but clearly Adams, said he doesn't want to do anything if he doesn't get 25 Gs. A spokesperson for Eric Adams says, quote, there is no indication that the campaign or the mayor is involved in this case or under investigation. The campaign always held itself to the highest standards, and we would never tolerate these actions. Now, the prosecutor said the group used almost two dozen straw donors. And the filing indicates that Montgomery, the person who was on the back and forth of those emails, was a former inspector in the New York Police Department and that he was the mastermind of the scheme. The six different defendants are charged with conspiracy, attempted grand larceny, and offering a false instrument. Montgomery, Riza, and two other co-defendants pleaded not guilty to the charges on Friday, this past Friday, and the remaining two defendants are expected to be arraigned at a later date. So how about that? Eric Adams, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that Bragg and the district attorney's office is looking at this. I suspect there is no way that when you run for a, a mayorship of a city as large as New York that you don't run into things like this. But it just, I mean, you know, safety, drywall, and security in Brooklyn? Come on. I, it, it, you, you can't, you can't. It, it's like out of, out of central casting, you know, the, the, the corruption of, uh, you know, the, these, you know, shared bogus uh, construction projects. Yeah. And there's lots of this kind of straw donation stuff going on where the candidate doesn't necessarily know uh, about it. Uh, although I, I thought it interesting, an email where he's like, the candidate won't accept anything less than 25 G's. Uh, but that person who said that also pled not guilty. So it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to, if Eric Adams was involved at all, it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to roll on him. So We'll see what ends up happening if these guys are willing to go to jail for this. Um, but you know, again, there's no allegation here uh, or indication that Eric Adams himself is even under investigation. And this does happen. I, I do I do want to say this. We look, we saw this a lot with the Trump campaign. We saw a lot of people trying to curry favor with Donald Trump, breaking laws uh, w without Trump's direct knowledge, or at least without evidence of Trump's direct knowledge, I should say, because there might, the, the, Eric Adams might have been involved in this, but if there's not enough evidence to prove it, you can't bring the case. So we'll, we'll, we'll hear more about this uh, as, as the additional arraignments happen and as the trials are scheduled probably sometime next year. So anyway, interesting. Yeah. 
And you'd expect, I mean, somebody, it's disappointing. Look, Dwayne Montgomery was a, a former NYPD uh, inspector. So it's always disappointing to see somebody, you know, a, a former law enforcement officer engage in this. And you would expect to see statements from the people who have been charged and from their attorneys, A, certainly pleading not guilty and, you know, professing innocence. But then once you start getting in, you know, a turnover of discovery, seeing what material and information the government has, that potentially doing a, a reverse proffer where, you know, folks come in and talk about the thing, you know, like if you're Montgomery and his attorney saying, hey, okay, can we cut a deal? I would expect to see, you know, the next logical step is move forward, start turning over all the evidence that the government has to produce in discovery and seeing, you know, like first person, you know, not everybody's going to get a deal. So if you want to make a deal, be the first in the door. And that's where I'd expect, you know, if you get somebody like Montgomery cooperating, you know, he's the one. You're like, why do you say the candidate said he doesn't want to do anything if he doesn't get 25 G's? Why do you, did you have a conversation with him? Did he tell you that? Did one of his staff tell you that? So there's a lot more to come, uh, you know, and nothing motivates somebody uh, like staying out of jail. So, you know, we'll see what, what comes down the pike. I think they'll, we, this is not the last we're going to hear about this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure too. Uh, all right, let's, let's shift gears to congressional Republicans and their continued debunked conspiracy theories about the investigation into Hunter Biden. Uh, David Weiss, the Trump appointed U.S. attorney that ran the five year investigation into Hunter Biden, has written yet another letter to congressional to a congressional Republican, this time Senator Lindsey Graham of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the letter reads, as I recently explained to the Honorable Jim Jordan, since the whistleblowers allegations relate to a criminal investigation that's currently being prosecuted in the United States District Court for the District of Delaware, I have a duty to protect protect confidential law enforcement information and deliberative communications related to the case. As I likewise indicated, I welcome the opportunity to respond to these claims in more detail at the appropriate future time, as authorized by the law and department policy, to clarify an apparent misperception and to avoid future confusion. I wish to make one point clear. In this case, I have not requested special counsel designation pursuant to 28 CFR section 600. Uh, Rather, I had discussions with departmental officials regarding potential appointment under 28 U.S. Code Section 515, which would have allowed me to file charges in a district outside my own without the partnership of the local U.S. attorney. I was assured that I would be granted this authority if it proved necessary. And this assurance came months before the October 7, 2022 meeting referenced throughout the whistleblower's allegations. In this case, I've followed the process outlined in my June 30th letter and have been never been denied the authority to bring charges in any jurisdiction. So this goes along with what Merrick Garland said during a press conference. He never asked me to be special counsel, and he had more power than a special counsel. Uh, he goes on to say, your questions about allegations contained in an FBI uh, 1023 form relate to an ongoing investigation. And as such, I cannot comment on them at this time. And uh, speaking of that Rudy Giuliani, uh, FD 1023, uh, Hunter Biden, it was revealed this week, has been working with Denver Riggleman. He was um, an advisor to the January 6th committee looking at uh, data. And so Riggleman is helping with the data contained on the now infamous Hunter Biden laptop. And we've seen a lot of... uh, Really interesting stuff come out. I know Marcy Wheeler did a huge piece on on her. She's digging through those data as well. It shows a lot of weird. Well, first of all, the laptop was in like 30 or 40 different hands. It shows 
all sorts of people from different and new phones logging into the iCloud, wiping off, wiping laptops clean, downloading clouds to new laptops. I mean, it it looks like, and I'm not a data expert, but I I I do a lot of stuff with iCloud computing and swapping devices, but it looks like somebody bought a laptop, hacked into Hunter Biden's iCloud and downloaded a bunch of stuff on it. So uh, again, that that's my first glance, first appearance, just based on the tracking of these devices and who was logging in and what numbers are known and what numbers are unknown, what emails are attributable, attributable to Hunter Biden, what phones are attributable to him. But it, I, I think it's I think it's interesting um, when you have somebody like Abby Lowell and Denver Riggleman working together, by the way, two pretty conservative people yep. uh, working on the Hunter Biden laptop data piece. Uh, and, you know, of course, NBC doing a bunch of investigations about some of the metadata on attachments to some of the emails that ended up on that laptop coming from Europe around the time Rudy was there with Furtosh and Fruman and Parnas and Derkach and Shokin and all that. So it's it's that's something else Rudy's dealing with. I think uh, it's going to be interesting because I know we've had reporting that Hunter Biden is potentially interested in suing the people who who have uh, used this laptop uh, against him, uh, maybe in defamation or other ways. But it, it'll be interesting to see what Denver Riggleman comes up with if it's used in any kind of a lawsuit. Yeah, there's so much going on in the story. I mean, look, first of all, the laptop is just a forensic mess. If you look at sort of the pattern that's been laid out about the different ways that the laptop was backing up data to the iCloud, other people and other accounts that were accessing it, the timing of it, you know, different parties potentially gaps in the record of, you know, when you would expect to see things there. If you were trying to build a criminal case and set up any sort of like evidentiary, you know, proof saying like, hey, we have this laptop, which, you know, showed up at, you know, the the repair store, trying to take that sort of back down the line and show that it was actually Hunter Biden that created the data and that the data hadn't been altered or tampered with. Whether you are a foreign intelligence service like Russia, whether you are allegedly, you know, a group like Project Veritas trying to, you know, they were going after Ashley uh, Biden's allegedly going after her diary. So you have domestic political actors who are trying to get a hold of this data and or spin it in certain ways, trying to take that information and say, okay, this is actual bona fide Hunter Biden content, let alone demonstrating that to a standard that would be used or that would be needed from an evidentiary perspective at trial, it's a disaster. And I think it's become like, you know, it's not even a Rorschach test. It's it's something where, you know, it has been so debunked at this point. There's so much uncertainty about the chain of custody. There's so much uncertainty about all the different players that may have had access to it to try and say anything certain about the data on the on the drive, I, I think starts becoming a fool's errand. And the other thing that's interesting, going back to the letter that was written, what what stands out to me in the uh, in 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 the Weiss letter to uh, Lindsay is he makes a point of saying that hey, look, you know, all this discussion about whether or not I would be allowed under you know twenty eight USC five fifteen to file charges in a district outside my own in Delaware, that this assurance came months. Before the October 7th, 2022 meeting that the whistleblower keeps talking about. So, you know, here you've got Weiss in this letter to Graham saying, look, all this crap that is being thrown out there by this IRS whistleblower, the reality is the discussions I had with DOJ, the assurances that I received from DOJ about being given this authority if it proved necessary 
happened well before this meeting that the whistleblower brings up. So you see that, and it's, you know, the stakes are raising. Like now you have two sides that are kind of digging in. <laughs> One side, certainly, you know, both sides claiming to bring receipts. I would place, if I had to bet, if you have a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, along with Attorney General Merrick Garland, asserting that things did or did not happen, and you've got, you know, an RRS, IRS whistleblower whose story is sort of, it, it doesn't seem to me to be holding together. And if I had to like sit there and say, all right, which of these two increasingly at odds accounts of what happened, uh, which of those two accounts I want to believe, look, I'm, I'm going to go with Weiss and I'm going to go with Merrick Garland, you know, 100 times out of 100. And it just, you know, this is not, the, the, the parties are not coming together to an agreed upon set of facts. They are sort of diverging further and, you know, laying down the line and starting to pull out receipts and in my mind, when I read the second letter from Weiss, he's got a pretty strong, you know, set of data here to show that, you know, some of these uh, alleged whistleblower uh, allegations maybe aren't all they're cracked up to be. Yeah. And not only that, but going back to the letter Abby Lowell wrote to some of the congressional Republicans about this, um, Riggleman had already been on the team for a while now when you know, now if I'm, now when I read that Abby Lowell letter through the lens of knowing Denver Riggleman is helping on the data here, uh, because it, it just come it just it's a little bit different. It hits a little bit different when Abby Lowell says the stuff that's on this laptop, a lot of it's fabricated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, you and I had talked about he wouldn't make that accusation or generalization unless he had some evidence of it. And now it appears that, you know, when you put somebody like Denver Riggleman behind it, um, it becomes more interesting. It sheds a little bit more light on on some of the accusations Abby Lowell made in that. So it's a 12-page letter. It was a long letter yeah. uh, about uh, debunking these conspiracy theories. So we'll keep an eye on all this and where it goes. But yeah, it's going to get to a, it's going to come to a head where you're going to have to believe one side or the other and one side has receipts and the other side doesn't. And then yet another Jim Jordan slash Republican Congress whistleblower uh, will be debunked again. I mean, how, how many <laughs> debunked whistleblowers must one go through before you just stop believing it? Right. No, I think we're well past that point. I mean, it, it's clear that there is like, you know, nothing that is going to happen in this uh, session of Congress, certainly with the weaponization committee is going to be credible. They don't, they have not, you know, if you want to front load, like lead with your best stuff, it's been dreck, it's crap, it's horrible. So, you know, what they might try and come up with later, I am not, you know, I have no expectation that it's going to be anything, uh, you know, interesting, let alone credible. And so this is yet one more chapter in the just horrid record of Jim Jordan's weaponization subcommittee that will, you know, go down in the history books as one of the most appalling exercises of congressional oversight in the history of the body. So, you know, I'm not surprised, but, you know, I th th there's nothing out there and I don't know what they hope to come up with. And it's not even, you know, it's not even that compelling. You don't see, uh, you know, Newsmax or Fox News, you know, jumping on this. There's, you know, certainly Fox is skeptical as, as most people. So, you know, poor, poor uh, James Comer, who shows up on Fox News and gets his ass handed to him week after week. This is not something that's <laughs> playing well with a sort of MAGA base. Yeah. And if we want to look at actual weaponization, maybe we should start with Michael Schmidt's reporting uh, that uh, you and yeah. Lisa Page were uh, purported targets of IRS audits, including going back to his reporting from November that McCabe and Comey were as well. This is written in a in a court filing under penalty of perjury by John Kelly. He heard Trump 
ask for audits into you and Lisa Page. So that that weaponization probably not going to be investigated by Jim Jordan and crew. Yeah. Well, the sad thing is this. Unfortunately, this is not nearly the worst abuse that Jim Jordan is going to be guilty of ignoring in his life. So, you know, sad to say it's, mm. uh, you know, it's it's appalling that the a chief of staff to a president of the United States is saying under oath that the president was asking for the IRS or other federal agencies to, you know, investigate government servants. But uh, again, not surprising, appalling, and absolutely nothing is going to be done by Congress. And, you know, if I had any hope whatsoever, in the Senate, maybe, but I, you know, I'm not holding my breath there either, and I, uh, you know, I can't explain it. I don't understand what the Republican-led Senate oversight committees are doing, um, but it is what it is. So, you know, it. it confirms... Are they Democratic-led? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Senate sorry. Yes. Committees? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Democratic-led. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm I'm still waiting. Hopefully, you know, if if just get Harlan Crow and some sort of Supreme Court uh, oversight on your dance card, and then from there move to Trump's abuses. But, you know, I'm not holding my breath on that. And, you know, if anything, we'll see. But again, it does confirm exactly what Trump is saying, what he's doing right now, trying to figure out who the people are on Jack Smith's team, who the prosecutors, who the investigators are. So the minute he regains the presidency, if he does, he's going to fire everybody. That isn't hyperbole. He did it last administration. We now know from his chief of staff, he's going to do it again. So don't have any fucking illusions that this is, I just, I just got our little E square right there on uh, today's episode on uh, uh, a podcast, <laughs> but, but don't, don't have any illusions that Trump is engaging in some sort of hyperbole. He has done it before, done it to me. He will do it again and he'll do it again on steroids. So don't, you know, when, when, you know, we're, we're talking about this, like it's some abstract, you know, bloviating. It's not, it is who the man is and it is exactly what he is going to do if he is the president again. Yeah, 100%. Uh, all right, we got to take another quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to um, talk a little bit about uh, this this federal judge that has ruled that federal agencies can't communicate with social media companies and um, the chilling effect of that and then DOJ replies. Uh, and and uh, we'll, we'll discuss that as soon as we take this quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. One more quick set of patrons to thank. Thank you so much, Lisa, Madeline Dingledean, Amanda Maynor, Catherine, I love it when Struck says fuck Heller, Lisa Seaman, Elaine Wilson-Reddy, Tim Jett, Carolyn Hutton, too damn many good podcasts to keep up. Thank you. Nikki Tommen, Michael Feldman, Nancy Lamb, Sue from Hobbs, Derek Ratliff, Julie, Michelle Stewart, Kendall Spooner, and Carrie Passator. Again, thank you. You make this show possible. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I just, wow, like 55 new patrons this week. So cool. I, we, like, I want to hug you all. All right. Next up, a federal judge has recently ruled that federal agencies cannot communicate with social media companies about disinformation with some exceptions, but even with the exceptions, Pete, as you said, just this past weekend on the bonus episode, that ruling will chill crucial communications ahead of the 2024 election. Well, the DOJ filed an appeal and made a request for a stay pending that appeal. And the judge, Terry Doty, who, by the way, was appointed by Trump and is the only judge in this jurisdiction where the right wing lawsuit was filed, guaranteeing this judge would get the case. The judge has denied the DOJ motion for a stay. And we're all like super surprised. Um, and here here's from the, the denial. Quote, plaintiffs are likely to prove 
that all of the enjoined defendants coerced, significantly encouraged, and or jointly participated social media companies to suppress social media posts by American citizens that expressed opinions that were anti-COVID-19 vaccine, anti-COVID-19 lockdown, posts that delegitimized or questioned the results of the 2020 election, and other content not subject to any exception to the First Amendment. Although this preliminary injunction involves numerous agencies, it's not as broad as it appears. It is. The defendant's motion to stay is denied. Um, now, here's here's what's cool. Uh, that, that ruling, well, none of this is cool, but this is interesting. The ruling denying the stay was filed at 11.47 a.m. Central Time. Two hours later, at 1.49 Central Time, the DOJ filed its emergency stay motion with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. <laughs> yeah. It only took a couple of hours. What did, what did the what did the DOJ yeah, have to so say? They look, pushed I mean, back pretty hard. Yeah, and this wasn't a surprise. I mean, you have to go to the district judge first, and so given the way what he wrote, the volume that he wrote, his history, his sort of all the kind of crazy ass perspectives he put forth in that hundred and fifty plus page ruling, the government expected that he was going to deny this motion. So they knew, in all likelihood, they were going to have to file uh, the emergency stay with the Fifth Circuit, and in that, in fact, they did, and they. They said, quote, the government respectfully requests a stay pending appeal of the district court's preliminary injunction. We further request an immediate administrative stay to permit the orderly resolution of this motion. And in any event, request relief by July 24th, 2023. If the court declines to grant a longer stay, it should at a minimum stay the injunction for 10 days to permit the Supreme Court to consider an application for a stay should the Solicitor General elect to file one. Plaintiffs oppose this motion. So, you know, in continuing, you know, some pretty good uh, writing here from President Kennedy's exhortation for steel companies to lower their prices to President Trump's efforts to encourage companies to keep American jobs onshore. Presidents and other officials have long exercised the power of persuasion to advance their vision of the public good. While the government may not coerce private parties to act on its behalf to achieve indirectly what it could not do directly, courts have set a high threshold for finding such coercion to give the government sufficient latitude to, quote, advocate and defend its own policies. So, you know, they they, they are, the government's on firm ground. Uh, you know, the Fifth Circuit is certainly a conservative circuit. I would still expect that they would, uh, you know, agree with the government here. But if not, you know, I would expect it, you know, much, you know, I don't know that it would be two hours later, but I would expect to see something found with the Supreme Court fairly quickly, uh, should the Fifth Circuit not agree. Yeah. And at the very least, like the DOJ is asking, hey, give us 10 days to file. If you don't want to give us a longer stay, give us 10 days to to do one with the Supreme Court if you don't want to do it. Um, and again, I think it's Alito who is over the Fifth Circuit as the, you know, how each judge has a circuit or circuits that it that it oversees. They're the ones who kind of do these administrative stays uh, pending appeal. So we'll end up seeing how that turns out. But the, the DOJ also wrote in, in, oh, go ahead. You were going to say no, something? No, I was going to say, yeah, no, absolutely. So they continued here and they're talking about, so this is again from the from the appeal. Here, however... The district court issued a universal injunction with sweeping language that could be read to prohibit, among other things, 
virtually any government communication directed at social media platforms regarding content moderation. The court's belief that the injunction forbids only unconstitutional conduct while protecting the government's lawful prerogatives rested on a fundamentally erroneous conception of the First Amendment, and the court's effort to tailor the injunction through a series of carve-outs cured neither the injunction's overbreadth nor its vagueness. It continues, Hmm. the preliminary injunction should be stayed pending appeal. At a minimum, the court should stay the injunction to the extent it extends beyond actions specifically targeting content posted by plaintiffs. This court should also grant an immediate administrative stay to permit the orderly briefing and disposition of this motion. And if the court declines to grant a longer stay, it should at a minimum stay the injunction for 10 days to permit the Supreme Court to consider an application for a stay should the Solicitor General elect to file one. So essentially that last paragraph, that last sentence or group of sentences saying, hey, look, whatever you're going to do, you know, essentially let things continue until all this is briefed and filed. So you're, you're, you're erring on the side of letting things continue rather than stopping anything. And, you know, clearly the, the government believes that, you know, when they're talking about a, a fundamentally erroneous conception of the First Amendment, uh, you know, is it, you know that, that, that's not particularly uh, ambiguous in its, uh, you know, assertion of what no. the government thinks of uh, uh, Doty's uh, reasoning. Yeah. I mean, the Fifth Circuit is pretty conservative, but I mean, like you said, DOJ has pretty firm standing here. I, I think there's a good possibility Fifth Circuit might award the longer stay. Uh, but if they don't, I think at the very least, they'll allow the stay to file the appeal with the Supreme Court for an emergency stay. Uh, and, and we'll see how this shakes out. We'll follow this. You can also keep following Zoe Tillman on Twitter. She's been covering this uh, very well since the beginning, since the, since the jump. And um, speaking of social media... <laughs> As promised at the beginning of the show, Elon Musk is very upset at Mark Zuckerberg, whose Threads app, which is a lot like Twitter, got over 100 million new users in the past few days. So upset, in fact, after failing to schedule a cage match with Zuckerberg because Elon's mom told him no, Elon has now challenged Zuckerberg to a literal dick measuring contest. With a ruler emoji and all. This is happening on the platform as we speak. uh, And that is where we are with our tech billionaires uh, and their social media sites. Yeah. And I think if I recall correctly, that was like a thread which right before that tweet about a a measuring contest that Musk uh, called Zuckerberg essentially a cuck, if I recall correctly. So it's it's nice that he is bought into the lingo of the alt-right uh, you know, sort of social media milieu, if you will. Um, you know, but I, again, I don't, I, I have, I, I can't keep up with all the different, I have tried threads. I don't know that I'm a fan. I have got a blue sky account now. I don't know that I, you know, necessarily care for that either. Mastodon is, as somebody put it, it's like you run into the, you know, the weird guy at the bus stop yelling at you about the shoes that you're wearing. I mean, it's just a sort of very, it has an offbeat sort of weirdness to it. So I don't, I I don't know what's going to become a social media, but the last thing we need is like these billionaires, uh, you know, and there was an excellent joke, which you'll have to tune into the, uh, the, the, the patron only episode because it's a, a rather sweary, uh, off color joke about this whole back and forth that I found quite amusing. But I, you know, come on, these guys are the captains of industry. You'd expect to like, you know, the the Rockefellers and the Gettys would be talking about like, oh, you know, we need to like have a dick measuring contest. You know, I, no, 
No, this is these these are child men who are sitting there working out you know whatever grievance they have against each other in the worst possible way in front of everybody and to the extent there is any you know sort of respect left for Musk whatsoever, I, I think he's lost it. Yeah, and this is the same Elon Musk who produced the one-sided Twitter files that likely led to the lawsuit that uh, we're now seeing, where the the Republicans and and people on the on the alt right uh, really want to stifle communications that limit disinformation. I mean, this is all about limiting disinformation. We see it coming from all sides. We see people on social media attacking academics and making their lives miserable, chasing them off. People who study disinformation as academics at major uh, educational institutions and colleges and universities uh, being silenced. We see a lot of uh, left-wing voices trying to get run out of town, um, a lot of uh, personal hit pieces that are going around. Just to, and, you know, I mean, it happened to me, but it's happening, not just me. It's happening all over the place. And then you have the Weaponization Committee with Jim Jordan bringing forth the Twitter files and then all of this additional stuff trying to uh, now uh, file lawsuits on, on seemingly their behalf to stop the government from trying to sp- uh, to call or rein in the spread of disinformation, particularly ahead of an election uh, when we know that uh, there's going to be uh, foreign election interference and, and social media uh, disinformation. And, and, and I'm not saying, you know, who I think should win the dick measuring contest, but Zuckerberg is no better with his handing over data to Cambridge Analytica in right. in 2016 right. uh, and being being partially responsible for for that uh, election the election interference from from bad foreign actors the meeting with Zamel you remember that whole psyop thing and uh, I mean it's just it's it's never ending and they will continue to try to stop people who want to stop disinformation from spreading and so I think. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the court comes down on this as the uh, tech bro billionaires continue to uh, act like they're eight years old. Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, people who are looking at threads who never had, you know, I never had a Facebook account, still don't have a Facebook account. And, and people who go to this saying, oh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and threads are so great. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you go back to the 2016 election, if you look at the interaction and the way the, the relationship and the data being shared with Cambridge Analytica, particularly if you look at when Facebook became aware of potential issues and whether or not they addressed it sufficiently, whether or not they shared uh, information about that when they should have. I, you know, that's a, there, there are real questions in my mind. And when you go back and you look at Mark Zuckerberg's testimony to Congress and his other public statements, there is some fuzziness in there that give me real that gives me real concern about sort of the history of Facebook's actions. So when you, you know, I, they, they, there's no case, like all these people, like nobody, you know, I, I, I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg's platforms. I certainly don't trust Elon Musk's uh, platforms. Um, you know, Jack Dorsey, I, you know, to the extent everybody's looking at Blue Sky with like a little bit of a, a raised eyebrow because Dorsey is, I, I think, on their board of directors, but in, in any event has a, a senior sort of leadership role. None of these folks are, are sitting out there with like a solid yes you know, this is a, you know, a platform without issues dedicated to free speech and, you know, without sort of problematic behavior in its past, in my opinion. So I, I don't know where it's going to settle. I know I, it's aggravating when you log on and to get any sort of like 
hey, what's going on in the world? And I now have to open up three different apps and go through the feeds to figure out, you know, what new news is out there is aggravating. I don't know how long it's going to take to settle out, um, but hopefully we can avoid a dick measuring process in the process. Yeah, I don't want to know the results of that. Thank you very much, though. Um, anyway, that is the show. Thanks so much again to all our new patrons. Um, we appreciate you. Uh, Pete and I will be back uh, this weekend for the bonus episode. And uh, any many final thoughts before we get out of here today? I mean, we're going to probably be shifting gears here pretty soon to talk pretty much exclusively about what's going to happen down in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really curious. I mean, I think it is based on what has been said, there's a reasonable expectation that Trump is going to be indicted. But what I'm really curious to find out is who other than Trump is going to be uh, involved in those indictments. I mean, certainly it wouldn't surprise me to see, you know, potentially fake electors uh, out of Georgia, people potentially affiliated with the Georgia Republican Party. But I'm really curious about sort of the national figures, the whole, you know, the Sidney Powell's and the Rudy Giuliani's and the Ju- uh, Jenna Ellis's, those folks, and to the extent that those national figures got or will be wrapped up in Georgia state level crimes, that's what I'm really interested in seeing. So, you know, we'll, yep. as you said, I, you know, that's coming down the pike. And, uh, you know, there, <laughs> when it comes, it is not going to be Walt and Donnie, uh, uh, you know, a simple two person conspiracy. I think we, there is going to be a lot of detailed information in a fairly complex. Uh, fact pattern that's going to give us a lot to talk about. Yeah, and and, and we'll see. I'm my, my eyes are on Meadows. What happens with Meadows here? Because if Meadows is not wrapped up in the indictments, I have to assume he's at some level cooperating with Fonnie Willis, and uh, that might speak to his level of cooperation with federal prosecutors. It's been a secret up until this point, and if she comes down with with her indictments and Meadows isn't there, and we have not yet seen January sixth indictments from from Jack Smith, we might get a little window into who is cooperating, who is not cooperating, who are targets, who are subjects, who are witnesses. Uh, should be very, very interesting and very telling. But I, I think that we might see some January 6th indictments from the feds ahead of that, but we also might not. Uh, but t- the, the, the clock is ticking. Um, we, we now have uh, the Iowa caucus, uh, scheduled the same day. I think E. Jean Carroll's case is supposed to, uh, go to trial January in January of next year. Um, and I know, well, I, I don't know that Jack Smith is going to be too concerned with when primary season kicks off. Uh, but I know it's all in the back of their heads. I know I, we've talked to several people who have said several sources that they, that the timing is important here and they know that. Um, so we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah, absolutely. And again, by the time you were listening to this episode, jury selection is already well underway, barring anything unforeseen. So it is, you know, as far as Georgia and Fulton County are concerned, it's coming down the pike. And in in short order, within days, that grand jury is going to start hearing testimony and hearing about evidence about, you know, crimes involving the 2020 election and Donald Trump. Yep, and we'll cover it for you on Clean Up on Aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We'll see you next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.
M S W Media.